This is the Steve Zabin Show. You don't know what the hell you're doing! On the Team 980 and theteam980.com. What the hell is he doing? Here he is, the Zabe. If you only take two words out of the entire weekend, I think those two words would be murder hornet. you got to be kidding me. Happy Monday, everybody, May 4th, 2020. And let me tell you, an avalanche of good things, interesting things to talk about. When I say good things, I don't necessarily mean literally good things. I just I look at it from a talk show host's eye and say, okay, what can I make a meal out of? And it's been lean, obviously. Today, though, my God. And when I say good things, obviously, it's a bad thing that Don Shula has passed away. But it will be a good thing to measure Don Shula's overall footprint on the game of professional football. Because if he's not on the Mount Rushmore, he's up there. He is iconic. And uh, passed away today at the age of, what was it, Scott? 90, I believe? 90, on yes, the sir. number? 90. 90. So we got that. We got uh, the NFL schedule release due for quote later this week. They have not put an actual date on it. You know how they, I guess they don't do this, do they, typically? They make us sit on pins and needles. No, right? they, they do they it. well in advance. But I, I think in years past, we only get a couple days warning. Yes. And then they would go right to the show, Zabe. So they would have the, you know, oh, d- hey, it's uh, it's coming out uh, Thursday night, and there's that reveal program. I don't know what they're going to be doing these days, but they do have enough people they, with cameras at home. They better do a reveal program. My God. Uh, why did the the date May 9 stick in my head? Because May 9th would be Saturday. Yeah. So we don't want that. That makes no sense. This is a Thursday deal. This meal and believe me, it's a delicious meal. It's a meal of hope and anticipation. It's got to be served on Thursdays so we can eat it fully on Friday to close out the week. If the NFL does anything other than that, well, then I'd want to be in line to slap them. Boo. I think the reports are something like, and I saw this on SI.com over the weekend, NFL regular season opener still will be set for September 10th. Super Bowl still scheduled for Feb 7. The league is expected to release its schedule by May 9th. But like you said, that's next Bye. Saturday. So the assumption Bye. is we'll get Thursday or Friday. Point. Yeah, exactly. I bet the next 48 hours they tell us when, and then we'll get all juiced up for it. Um, the Rona did claim the International Series, so there's that. Consider me one of the most dry-eyed observers of that <laughs> development. I'm like, I have never liked the outsourcing of these valuable, precious NFL games to Europe. I know it's a cash cow for them. I know it's a way for them to essentially get a pseudo, a shadow franchise in another country without making anybody actually, you know, live there. (laughs) You just play a full slate of sampler games. Hell, some of us fans wouldn't mind a sampler platter of teams and games coming to our city here in America, given how bad... The local team has been for so long. I'm not saying I'm there yet, but I'm just saying as a concept. So they're going to keep it simple, and that would be a small wrinkle and a small casualty of the 2020 schedule. But it's something that we're going to look forward to, and, of course, we're going to dig into it. But other than that, I mean, the Mitch Trubisky fifth-year option is endlessly fascinating. Andy Dalton to Dallas is probably not a big deal, but people are trying to fluff it up into one. 
Friday afternoon, the U.S. women's national team got absolutely slide-tackled in federal court, and they are still stung by it, but I have some thoughts on it. The Alex Smith documentary was sensational. We've got Stefania Bell today at 5 o'clock. I can't wait to talk to her about it. Uh, The whole thing was brilliant beyond all comprehension. And we've got fight week because the UFC is back, so I'm going to give full run and attention to those sports that are first to come back. And like you said, the Korean Baseball League will be back on ESPN starting at 1 a.m. if you're jonesing for stuff. And then you had the virtual Kentucky Derby on Saturday, which was unbelievable. How'd they get it to look so good? Now, I was looking at it on a phone, and I'd had a couple of bourbons at the time with my brother uh, who turned 54, Flim, and I said, I- is this a real horse race here? What the hell's going on? But they did a really nice job, and of course, Secretariat won. But they made it look like, oh, Secretariat's not going to win this thing. It's in fourth place. What's going on here? Mm -hmm. I just wish the announcer had said, and down the stretch they come! Did not get that in the digital pseudo replay. Someday, and I hope to be alive for it, we will see sophisticated digital recreations of what it would look like if Jordan in his prime met LeBron in his prime and the two of them went head-to-head with the best teams of their representative eras. Like the big three with the Heat, the Heatles, versus, say, the 92 Bulls. Someday we'll be able to create that. The graphics will be good enough. The artificial intelligence and the programming will be good enough that we'll be able to look at it and unless you're up really close to the TV, you won't be able to tell the difference. I'm convinced of that. All right, of course, the Jordan documentary provided us with a absolute treasure trove of things to dig into as well. So, without further ado, the text line is open, 330-99-ZABE. That's how you reach me directly. You don't have to put your dirty laundry out on the Internet. It's a more personal reach out to me. I do nothing with your phone number. All I do is I have a keyboard here, and through this... Uh, google voice interface i can text you back if you have a specific question i'm not a help desk though so let's not abuse it but a little bit more of a personal direct relationship with yours truly the host of this show we are very happy to be on in richmond virginia uh we are happy but also it comes at the expense of some local guys who did nothing wrong and did not deserve the axe but that's the way it goes in this business i've been i've been on both sides of it and i hate it Uh, but it is what it is, so we will try to just give you our best every day, give you something good to listen to down there on 99.5 FM and 102.7 FM on ESPN Richmond. And uh, I did send a tweet out, so go ahead and uh, reach out to me and say, oh, hey, you're back. We used to be on in the mornings there uh, on a different station back Mm -hmm. in the day for Fox Sports and Sporting News and Yahoo and then SB Nation and then dot-com sports talk thing, the jig and whatever <laughs> came there. So are you afraid of the murder hornet? Yes. Is it yes, overhyped? <laughs> they no. found one, apparently, in the States. They're big that, over that, in Asia. Just one? Well, I don't know. Maybe they found more than one. Did you see the YouTube guy whose whole channel is to get stung and bit yeah. by things that really hurt? That could almost kill you, and he does it. He, he got himself bit by the murder hornet. The murder hornet is a meat-eating hornet about five times the size, at least, of a regular hornet. And it doesn't even sting you. It 
bites you with its razor-sharp mandibles. Mandible. Mandelbaum. 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 Right. Jaw. Exactly. I hope they don't become prevalent over here. But as a young boy who would obsess about news reports in the 70s and 80s about the so-called killer bees or Africanized honeybees, the kind of bees that were the subject of movies like The Swarm and what was the other movie? One of the movies was they had to lure the bees into the Houston Astrodome and then turn the air conditioning way up so it basically froze the bees. That was the only way they could kill this killer swarm. I used to obsess about this. Like, we got reports of them coming up. They're going to be in America. Oh, my God. That's what you worry about as a kid. You didn't worry about viral pandemics. Is that what it is? I believe that's the case. And did they take him into the Astrodome to to kill him? I seem to recall that was the main plot twist at the end. Hopefully Uh, the murder hornet doesn't turn out to New Orleans, apparently. So, yes, Savage Bees. Let's go with it. Any other B horror movies, let us know. 330-99, Zabe. Before I get to our first guest of the day, David Aldridge is going to swing back in again. We uh, talked to him about two weeks ago when the Jordan docuseries began. It's time for an update because I thought he had some good comments last night about just how hard it was to be Michael Jordan at the peak of it. And kind of when he snapped and the whole thing with the gambling, which was pretty much episode six last night. But before we get to uh, David... Our poll question of the day is this. What's the best one-word description of the Alex Smith documentary on E60? Riveting, heartbreaking, queasyifying. It's not a word. Yeah, it is. Just made it up. Or inspirational. It's unfair because the documentary was all four of those things, but you got to pick one. So currently, inspirational is edging out heartbreaking. Uh, for one, two, and it's all pretty evenly uh, set right there. So go ahead and vote at Team980 or at my Twitter feed, at Zabe Charlie. Zulu, Alpha, Bravo, Echo. All right, first quick break of the show coming up. We'll have David Aldridge. You saw him last night on the ESPN documentary, The Last Dance. We'll talk about how hard it was to be, quote, like Mike. Now back to the Steve Zabin Show on the Team 980 and 95.9 FM. One of the things that struck me last night, as it has for the entire documentary, was just the absurd overcoverage of every little thing Michael Jordan did at his peak of celebrity, including the first time around and the second time around. Just the number of handheld video cam guys like, oh my God, did you get the footage of Jordan walking through the hall? No, I missed it. Damn you. Jones, we sent you out there to get it. What the hell happened? There was the one picture last night of Jordan. It was from straight down, probably from a balcony or something. And he was surrounded by just a phalanx of reporters, microphones, tape recorders, cameras. And you just said to yourself, my God. It's like, (laughs) I'm not saying the coverage is different now. It's just a little bit more organized. Back then, it was a lot different. David Aldridge joins us now. From The Athletic, you've got a piece up about how hard it was to be Mike at the peak. It's good to check back in again. David, how are you doing today? Oh, Steve, I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me. Life in a Fishbowl, The Last Dance, and how fame ricocheted against Michael Jordan. It's at theathletic.com right now, The Athletic DC. Subscribe and uh, enjoy the good local and national journalism. I, uh, I still respect Jordan immensely, David, for how he handled it. 
I know that the episode six kind of chronicled when things cracked a bit for him, but for the most part, I'm still in awe that he was as good as he was to the media and to kids and to fans while going through that day after day. What was your feelings about the episode where it showed that the, the he was cracking a little bit and he was trying to figure out how to handle that? Yeah, I mean, I think they did a, a fairly good job of, of detailing kind of that gradual kind of like erosion of his uh, trust in the media and his willingness to engage with the media. It just got so big, Steve, to your point at the beginning. There was just there was just so much media around him in 92 and 93. Um, you know, he had been obviously the most the most popular player in the league, maybe along with Magic, for a while. And he had always had a lot of media around. But after they won the first title, or, or, and certainly after the Olympics, um, it just got so big. And it was, you know, there were people, that's when you started to notice, where, where are you from again? We're from China. Where are you from? Oh, we're from Pakistan. <laughs> you know, and it was right. every day, you know, like... You know, and it was, that's when you started to notice that there were people from all over the world coming to the state to, to watch the Bulls play. And it got, it just got so big. You just could not get, you couldn't get close to him. That's when you started, well, I'm going to have to get, I'm going to have to take next to this monitor because this is as close as I can get to what we're right. today. You that's... know, it's got, a, it got so big and. Yeah, and it was the same questions over and over again. And certainly after the, the Atlantic City thing came, that was kind of a, a breaking point, I think, for him. Um, you know, because if you really boil it down to it was man gets in a car, goes to Atlantic City and gambles, goes back home. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, well, that's the thing. Like, was was the Atlantic City thing blown out of perspective by the media or was there a legitimate story there that they captured? I mean, the one thing that I took on as a discrepancy, the report said 2.30 he was gambling. He said he was home by 12.30. To right. me, that would make a difference. Like, 2.30, you're starting to push it into, are you really going to get enough rest? Yeah. Well, I would say was it- you could make that. I think you could, yes, you certainly later is not better, right? Nothing good happens after midnight is the old adage, right? So um, that, there's no question that the later you go in the night, the, the more scrutiny you're going to get. Um, but, again, we're talking about play, we're not talking about a noon tip here. You know what I mean? This is, this is not the old days where they play playoff games at noon Eastern. You know, I mean, this is 9 o'clock prime time. Um, you know, even if he's out till 2.33 in the morning, like, is – are the Bulls going to not win if he, if he doesn't go to shoot around? You know what I mean? Like, so it's like, um, I think, so to me, it was blown out of proportion. It would have been different if Jordan, A, was drunk, B, got behind the wheel of a car, C, tried to drive back 110 miles drunk and in a car. That's a whole different story, right? <laughs> but that's not what was happening. It was guy, you know, gets in a limo and, and does what guys, what people do in Atlantic City. And goes back home. You know, like there was no there what was no what was, was no, I know what happened. You know, like, I know by today's standards, where gambling is much more accepted, it just seems so quaint and prude almost. Yeah. But what was the league, David? Yeah. What was the league, and what was Stern so concerned about? You know, that's a great question, Steve. That's a very good point, and I hadn't thought of I hadn't thought about that. You make a good point that today gambling is just kind of accepted 
you know, it's 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 uh, outside of the closet now. But back in those days, you know, that was like the absolute worst thing that any league could contemplate was any whiff of gambling being around its players, and certainly the, the biggest player in the league and the biggest player in sports at the time, I would argue. Um, to have any connection with gambling was viewed as taboo. And so that's a very good point that it was just thought of so differently. I remember talking to David Stern for years and the abject horror. They were they would file briefs that were against, you know, scratch-off lottery tickets in states. I mean, seriously, they would say this is a slippery slope and you let people start gambling on, on lottery tickets. And what are they going to gamble on next? And, and they were serious about that. And so right. that is very much part of the kind of, I think, panic that the league had and maybe fueled a lot of the reaction that, that the media and the public had because at the time, gambling was just viewed as such anathema, with such anathema by so many people that, you know, a guy saying, yeah, I should go gamble was something that they just could not countenance at all. David Aldridge, The Athletic, D.C., nice enough to join us here on The Zabe Show, at David Aldridge, D.C. David, part five starts off with In Loving Memory of Kobe, and you get the 98 star game as a backdrop in New York City, and you see MJ talking about, quote, that little Laker boy. But then he takes him on just sort of as this older brother mentor role. It's the whole... The whole episode was this fascinating, the whole two episodes were this fascinating dichotomy of him mentoring Kobe from afar, but also the same guy who would murder Murley and Kukoc on the floor only because they were Jerry Krause's, uh, they, they, you know, they, he liked them. It's, it's, he's mm-hmm. such an interesting personality. Well, certainly, you know, anything that was connected by proxy to Jerry Krause was going to be someone that, that Michael was going to go after and go at. Um, so Tony, through no fault of his own, certainly fell and was in the middle of that uh, episodic kind of soap opera that that, that, that franchise had at the time. Um, you know, it's funny. I was I did a, a web thing with a webinar with Isaiah Thomas and Patrick Ewing yesterday and Dominique Wilkins, and I was. You know, Isaiah took great exception to the to the notion that that people hated each other back in in those days, and you know he was like, well, you know, we competed, we were great competitors, but when the game was over, we hung out with you know we hung out with each other all the summer, and we you know we would go to each other's events and 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 play golf with each other, and that's all true. And then what's the first thing that you see in in the show the other night? It's Patrick saying, "Yeah, we hated the we hated the Bulls." You know, like, and so I don't know what you know. What do you what do you take from that? So I I certainly feel like um, there was a great sense of uh, competition. I think from from Michael toward Kobe in the sense that he knew Kobe get kind of patterned himself after Michael and wanted to be the the next Jordan and really was the first guy because there have been so many next Jordans. You know, Harold Miner was the next Jordan. Grant Hill was the next Jordan. You know, J.R. Ryder was the next Jordan. Everybody was the next Jordan. You know, nobody turned out to be the next Jordan. But Kobe was the first guy that really was like, you know, this guy's really pretty good. And so I think there was certainly a sense of competition that I'm going to slap my little brother around. But to your point, there was also a sense of, hey, you know, I'm here as a resource to help you out, you know, if you need Mm-hmm. guidance on, on you know, how to train and some of the other things, learning about the league, I'll be happy to help you out because I understand how hard this league is. 
And there, so, so both of those things, as, as Jordan and Isaiah pointed out, can be true, that you want to kill the guy on the floor, but then when the game's over, you want to help him. More along the dream team, since you mentioned Isaiah. Uh, Mr. Wilbon, I believe, it was it said there was more to it. Isaiah had stuff with Scotty. Isaiah had stuff with Magic. Isaiah had stuff with Larry. But MJ last night said, well, if you want to attribute it to me, then, then go ahead. Whatever Rod Thorne said, whatever you've read, whatever, you know, blah, blah, blah. But Michael mm-hmm. says that there's still more to it. What Will we ever come to know what the more to it is, David? No, just what you said. Carl Malone, too. Carl didn't like him either. You know, I mean, so, so I mean, there was a lot of people that, that, that were, you know, there was the whole thing about Carl Malone scoring all those points, and then Isaiah took it out on Stockton and scored like 40 on Stockton, and then Carl elbowed Isaiah in the head. And it was just, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on back in, in, those, in that year, year and a half period. Um, so there were a lot of players, and I, you know, to defend Isaiah a little bit, it's because the Pistons were really damn good right at that yep. point, you know, and a lot of people didn't like them because they were the best team in the league. So um, until the Bulls finally beat him in '91, so there was a lot of kind of animosity going on. I think it wasn't just it wasn't just Jordan. That's true. But having said that, if Michael Jordan had given his blessing, Isaiah Thomas would have been on the Olympic team. Period. Simple right. as that. You know, if he had said, "Yeah, I can play with him." You know, what would happen? Because everybody knew Isaiah should have been on the team. And and it was about it wasn't about talent. It was about do we wanna be do we wanna hang out with each other for six weeks? You know, starting in San Diego and then going to Portland and then going to Monte Carlo and then going to Spain for the Olympics. But it was six weeks of being together. And so that was the question. You know, you could have picked the next twelve guys and they would have won the gold medal that year. So it wasn't about the talent. It was about do yeah. we want to hang out with each other for six weeks? And more people than Jordan were like, eh, I don't really, not really, not with it. And so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just Jordan, but Jordan certainly could have said, hey, let's get him. He belongs on this team. He should be on the team. And it would have happened. And it didn't happen. I, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. So. Uh, Exit question. We thank you for your time today, uh, David. I, I think the dream team was one of the great things in sports because it was fun to see a comically overbuilt super team just once in a real competition. B, we had owed it to the world for some of the robberies, including the 72 Olympics uh, back in the day. And C, it helped spread the seed of basketball passion around the world that has helped produce some incredible global players that are now playing in the NBA. Do you agree with that, or was the dream team maybe a bit too much, and was it perhaps a bit of ugly Americanism when it's all said and done? No, I, I tend to agree with with what you said, Steve. I mean, I think that um, you know certainly, and what you know, seventy two was was certainly you know uh, you know a, a very clear kind of if you want to say robbery, fine, but certainly uh, you know just a, a very odd way to end the cha- you know a gold medal game yeah. and it just didn't make any sense the way it ended um but then you add to that 88 when when Sabonis when Sabonis was healthy and young you know right. just kicked our butts you know the the college yeah we butts. sent a college team over there that didn't have enough shooters and whoops right. uh, it was yeah. a bad deal so so that that but i mean clearly the 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 dream team got a lot of european kids with nba stars in their eyes 
No, no, no question. And that's and that's where I think the the legacy of that team is not that it you know won by an average of forty one points a game or whatever it was. Because clearly they you know there was no competition back then. Right. Um, um, but it was that that was what a young Dirk Nowitzki watched or a young Paul Cal Gasol watched and said, "Wow, that's what I want to have. That's how I have to play. That's how good I have to be to play in the NBA." And it was made clear by watching them. That's what we're going to have to do. So we're going to have to get better coaching, better training. We're going to have to do more work. And I think they did, you know. And so you saw, you know, Spain and Argentina and other great programs around the world start to really understand that this is what you're going to have to do um, if you want to be as good as the NBA guys. And all of those clinics that Hubie Brown and all those coaches did year after year overseas, and the coaching that that, that that spawned and the development mm-hmm. for the young players that came up after that created what you have now, which is a league that is filled with international mm-hmm. talent from around the world, you know, and there, it, it, and the dream team was the beginning of that. There's no question about that. Absolutely. All right. Very good. Thanks for your time. As always, David, we'll read your stuff at the athletic DC and we'll talk soon. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it guys. There you go. Thanks, uh, David Aldridge, uh, who was in the documentary last night and uh, makes some good points there, to be sure. Poor Tony Kukoc. Somebody, <laughs> somebody said if Jerry Krause said, boy, I like, I like the sun, Jordan would then conspire to blow up the sun. <laughs> what? Yes. You do? <laughs> if if uh, Jerry Krause said, boy, I love Slurpees, Jordan would rent a cement truck and drive it right into the middle of a 7-Eleven. That's the way he motivated himself. Poor Clyde Drexler. Drexler never did nothing to Jordan. Never said anything. And Jordan's like, yeah, man. I, I mean, he wasn't. I mean, he was a threat, but I mean, he wasn't like me. I was pissed off. <laughs> and he just proceeds to <laughs> annihilate him. Something, something to be said about that. We got more uh, uh, to talk about with the documentary. Uh, got got a text. Uh, send it in. 330-99-ZABE. Coming up, DMV Sports Desk. With Scott Lynn. And on the other side, Andy Dalton now in Dallas. Big deal or just a ho-hum backup signing? We'll discuss next. You're listening to the Steve Zabin Show on the Team 980 and now in Richmond as well on 99.5 FM and 102.7 FM ESPN Richmond. The DMV Sports Desk on the Team 980 and 95.9 FM. With the latest brought to you by Discover, I'm Scott Lynn. Get your free credit scorecard today, even if you're not a Discover customer. It includes your FICO credit score, and checking your scorecard won't hurt your credit. Learn more at discover.com slash credit scorecard. Limitations do apply. Starts off the National Football League, where the league is in mourning today. Don Shula has died. Legendary Dolphins, for that Colts head coach. 90 years of age was Mr. Shula. He won an NFL record 347 games, including playoffs, six Super Bowl berths, two Super Bowl victories. NFL schedule for the regular season to come out later this week. The league will call off, per reports, international games for this year. Top-ranked high school quarterback Caleb Williams of Gonzaga has his list narrowed down to a final three school trio, Oklahoma, LSU, and Maryland. Louisville Hoop has been slapped with a notice of allegations about their program. Allegations include a level one, which nobody wants, some proper recruiting offer and extra benefits to the family of an enrolled student athlete, and a level two against Rick Pitino, who, of course, was 
at Louisville, but now is the new new hire at Iona. Canadian Prime Minister Justin the weekend that non-Canadian players at a minimum would need to follow quarantine protocol if they arrive while the borders are still closed. DMV weather, 73, sunny, breezy in Silver Spring, partly cloudy near 50 tonight. Clouds only in the mid-50s for your Tuesday. Nobody's really sure what time it is these days, but do make sure you're waking up with the Kevin Sheehan Show, 6 to 9 a.m., Doc and Galdi, 9 to noon. Be Mitch and I from 12 to 3, and the Zabe Show will take you home starting at 3 o'clock. 95.9 FM, Zabe continues live on this Monday from the 95.9 FM Team 980 studio. Steve, back over to you. All right, thank you very much, Scott. I think we should probably dip into the uh, text line. What do you say? 330-99-ZABE is how you reach us. Go ahead and vote in our Twitter poll today, which is what is the best one-word description of the gripping Alex Smith documentary. I assume you watched it uh, over the weekend? Absolutely, in its entirety, buddy. Sat down with the boys and uh, and watched it. It was... I, I Did Sonya it's inspir- watch it? It's... She, I tried to get my wife and daughter to watch it she's with squeamish. us. And, yeah, she saw the some of the stills. Squeamish. Yeah. You know, here's what I thought, and maybe I can gently ask this of Stefania Bell. If they could release a version of it that has the worst images blurred out or maybe give you a five-second okay turn away for the next ten seconds, mm-hmm. because the message... And the frankness of all the participants, including when the doctor, and I forget her name off the top of my head, when she wells up talking oh, yeah. about what she had recommended, it was unbelievably powerful stuff. Yeah, Dr. Mm-hmm. West. So it's the kind of thing you want to make your kids see, uh, to have a lesson in perseverance, gratitude, humility, family togetherness, all, you know, faith, all that stuff. You just don't want the... The horror show. <laughs> no. no. So maybe there's a way to do that. Uh, this one from Andy in Annapolis, 301. Uh, imagine being a young Tony Kukoc and having Jordan and Pippen both using you to prove a point, and you have no idea why. Yeah. Right. Not only just Jordan and Pippen, two of the most ferocious defenders on the planet, double-teaming you, but doing so in a game in which they know they don't have to worry about anyone else on the team and even still, there's 10 other guys, well, plus Leitner, who are badass enough to handle those other dudes. It's like yeah, totally and unfair. And they sent totally Barkley unfair. after him, too. Barkley's coming at him full speed like a dump truck. <laughs> and it's, everybody's after poor Tony. It was the worst roller dirt. 2-4-0, how about that game one versus Portland when they said, and Jordan with a record five threes. You know what the record is for uh, postseason threes, and you know who holds it? Steph. Close, right team, wrong guy. Clay. Ding. 2016, do you know what the number is? Uh, nine. Eleven. Eleven. This one goes to. Right, this record goes to eleven. Anyway, that was uh, that was funny. Uh, 202, do you think MJ was serious about calling himself God? No, he said, I'm just kidding when he gave out the ticket. To One Randy ticket Brown. to Randy Jordan. Great, Randy great, Brown, yeah. yeah. Great scene. Yeah, I don't care if they're sitting next to God in the locker room. Well, he just gave you two to get in the building. Except he gave him one. I, yeah, I, I, I know. Jordan 
Jordan was the ticket master, and he sat there in that resplendent gold suit, just chilling next to all the uh, what? What were his attendants called? The sniff squad. Yeah, he's there amongst yeah. the sniff squad, and you had to come and kind of beg for a ticket. And he, Randy Brown got one. <laughs> he was lucky to get the one. He's like, need to be in the building or, or what? Does it need to be a good ticket or what? <laughs> so funny. It was awesome. All right. So Andy Dalton is a cowboy. It makes perfect sense. It's cheaper than what people are reporting. At Fish Sports, uh, which is, oh, come on, would you pop up for me here? Uh, uh, Fisher from SI in, in Mike um, Fisher. Alex, Mike yes, Fisher. Mike Fisher. That's him. In his bio, it says, at Fish Sports Cowboy Insider, CowboySI.com. Give us your real name. Come on, Fish. At Mike Fisher, who covers the Cowboys, does a good job. Uh, the Andy Dalton scoop is this. It's not a $7 million one-year deal. It's a $3 million salary cap hit. The other potential $4 million goes like this. If he plays 50% of the snaps of the regular season and the playoffs, he gets a $1 million. Guess what? Not happening. Next level of partial pl- uh, payout would be playoff success, another bonus. One more level of partial playoff uh, or payout would be uh, another bonus. And then finally, to earn the entire $7 million, he says, he would have to play an active role in the Cowboys' Super Bowl win. Active role. That's the language in the deal. It's an eminently reasonable backup salary for a guy who was a QB1 just a blink ago. And if you're Dallas, I think it makes perfect sense. Dallas is a team that appears to be constructed, ready to contend right now. Some people, I think, are running way too far with this in that they're saying, well, is this a threat to Dak Prescott? Des Bryant, who's... I don't know why his opinion matters on Cowboy things anymore, but he said it was an affront to Dak that Dalton got paid before Dak got paid. Oh, boy. Dak's going to get paid. Now, I don't think Jerry's doing himself any favors by dragging this out. I think it's making Dak more expensive. But that said, we're talking about a routine backup deal. That's all. And I saw Karen Florio write how, well, now that they've got Dalton, who's essentially a starter, they could rescind the franchise tag offer to Dak, and he would have a hard time at this late stage in the free agency game finding another team that might be willing to pay him. And I'm like, really? Really? You think that was worth writing about? You think that play is somehow in play for Jerry? Really, Florio? Is that, is that going to happen and why would that have what? Hey, we got one year of Dalton, who's not very good. We got Dak, who is the face of the franchise. We market to the moon, has never missed a game, and he's really good. Is he capital G great? No, but he's really good. Let's give him up, and let's go with the one-year red rifle. That's That's the play right there. Good grief. Anyway, that's the deal on Andy Dalton to Dallas. Andy Dalton not to the Patriots is a more significant thing, which tells me and others that it's Stidham or bust for Belichick this year. And it may say that 
Belichick realizes this offseason is going to be severely truncated and limited because of the coronavirus, and therefore bringing in somebody new to learn the system and get them up to speed is probably going to be a waste of time. It could also mean that basically Belichick wouldn't mind pseudo-tanking for Trevor Lawrence. I don't think that's in his DNA. I don't think he can possibly lay down as a coach. I think he grinds too hard, and I think he's too good. I think despite the fact on paper the Patriots look like they're headed finally for a losing season, it just doesn't seem like it's in Belichick's DNA to only win two or three games, which is what it's going to take to get Trevor Lawrence. But we'll see how it looks. We'll put it. We'll put the Patriots and Belichick to the sniff test when the season rolls out, and then we'll get a better idea of if they are indeed tanking. As of now, it just looks like, well, he's basically uh, going to go with Stidham because he's the guy that's in-house, and he thinks they can win with Stidham, and who? Who knows? Hell, they might actually be able to win just a bit with Jared Stidham or Jarrett Stidham. Coming up, some page twos, including, hello, Twitter world, yours truly, and his tribute to the great Don Shula. That's next. You're listening to the Steve Zabin Show right here on the Team 980. Now back to the Steve Zabin Show on the Team 980 and 95.9 FM. I don't know why I'm a sucker for OJ videos, but I guess I am. They're usually two minutes or less. And who knows what silly things he might say. In this case, I think he has some heartfelt remembrance for the iconic coach of the 70s and the 80s that he played against as a Buffalo Bill, Don Shula, who passed away today at 90. Hey, Twitter world, it's me, yours truly. Well, the NFL- Hey, OJ, first of all, the golf courses are open in uh, Las Vegas now, so you got that going for you, which is nice. Lost one of the great ones today, uh, Don Shula. Uh, my condolences to his family. You know, Shula was the one coach I most wanted to play for during my career. Unfortunately, I had to play against him twice a year in Buffalo against Miami, and never in all of those years did we ever win one game. Oh, my God. <laughs> that no-name defense, boy, were they good. Uh, do you know in back-to-back Super Bowls, winning Super Bowls for them, they gave up one touchdown, one touchdown in two Super Bowls. That's Think about that. The other game, uh, you're your premium on a special teams. Tried to throw the ball, and Mike Bass took it the other way. But, boy, were those guys good. What's sort of amazing is, you know, only one of those defensive players, Nick Bonacani, is in the NFL Hall of Fame. Not Jake Scott, not Dick Anderson, not Manny Fernandez. Somehow that doesn't seem right. This morning, talking to two of my buddies, talking about Shula, uh, we we were putting together a Mount Rushmore of NFL coaches, and three guys were cinches, Vince Lombardi, Don Shula, of course, and Bill Belichick. We kind of no differed on the fourth guy. One guy's older than me, even, and he said George Alice. Yeah. Uh, then we debated uh, uh, Tom Landry, uh, Joe Gibbs, who had a remarkable yeah. career. And the guy that I went with was uh, Chuck Noll. He won four Super Bowls. Four Super Bowls, that's saying something. It was tough for me to leave off a guy who, uh, one of my favorite people, who actually benched me at the end of my career, but uh, and that was Bill Walsh. But Bill didn't even win 100 games, even though his effect on the game of football, especially offense, is 
undeniable. But maybe he and Shula coaching against each other again up there. <laughs> in any event, my condolences, rest in peace. I'm just saying, take care, stay healthy. Yep, and by the way, my short game is great again now, Says uh, so says OJ. All right, we're uh, working to get Scott Lynn back up here and running. I know he's got some comments on that, but that's an interesting debate about the Mount Rushmore of coaches because depending on how you measure it, Walsh's influence is so pervasive and the tentacles of it filter throughout the league in terms of his coaching tree and the West Coast offense and the influences of it, but uh, his tenure was relatively short compared to others. Noel has the rings and the hardware to back him up, but you know those Steelers teams of the 70s were a team that was one of the first teams that used steroids pretty pervasively, and some say that that puts a little bit of a taint on their dominance of the time. Now, they were, of course, great teams, um, and Dole, and Noel deserves his credit for what he did there. Uh, you could make an argument for Parcells, I suppose. Uh, you could – Gibbs, we, I'm, we're biased. I'm biased because he's a Redskin. But to win three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks, none of whom are in the Hall of Fame, one of whom is going to talk to us next hour in Joe Theismann, and to win two of those three Super Bowls in compromised season, seasons, one being a strike-shortened season in which they played a limited number of games, the other one being a replacement season where he had to coach up scabs to play for the team, I think is a testament to Gibbs's coaching skills, people skills, and organizational abilities. So that's a strong argument right there. But, um, yeah, Don Shula... Absolutely iconic and deserves to be on the fictional Mount Rushmore of coaches in the NFL. This is an interesting comment. Benjamin Albright says, and Benjamin is a host, reporter, and analyst for the Broncos flagship station, KOA Colorado. And he played it. Did did Benjamin Albright play in the NFL? I'll, I'll look that up. But... Uh, He says, sometimes I feel like I don't belong in sports talk radio. It feels like the bulk of the industry is just looking for a hook or an angle or a narrative to rile you up with. I've never been that guy, and I never intended to, and I never needed to be. Maybe that's just me not getting it. I don't know. He didn't like the fact that they said that if C.D. Lamb does not become a WR1 by the end of the season, that it was a wasted draft pick. Yeah, that's, I don't know, that's debatable. That's debatable whether that's a decent subject to bring up and how you frame it. I would say, though, that there's nothing wrong with having a hook as long as it gets people to think or to have an angle that gets people talking as long as it's not just to, quote, rile you up with. And if it's a legitimate angle or a hook that is defensible in some way shape or form and if you believe in it yourself as a host and you're not just trotting it out there as some sort of show pony to go oh yeah how about this but people are passionate you know fans are fans they're not logical and no matter how long it takes to become a a really good wide receiver in the nfl a lot of people want instant production in the first year for a wide receiver taken uh, at least somewhere in the middle of the first round or higher. But it's it's tricky. We think as fans that wide receivers are the easiest in terms of plug and play. 
and it's actually very hard. According to all the football people I've talked to, they've explained it, and I said, oh, yeah. That is not just, okay, you're fast. you got good hands. Go run around out there and catch passes from our Pro Bowl quarterback. What's the problem? Why aren't you doing this? There could be a million little reasons why they're not doing it or why they're not catching on. The Fail Mary game will re-air tonight on ESPN at 8 o'clock. The game was officiated by replacement refs on Sun. Was it Sun? Yeah, it was Monday night, not Sunday. Monday night football, and it featured what was ruled to be the first go-ahead touchdown with no time remaining in regulation in Monday night football history, and it, of course, involves uh, and, and includes the iconic photo of the two referees in the end zone, replacement referees, disagreeing with their arm signals as to whether it was a catch or an interception. One guy had it as an interception, uh, Skeeter McBuzzcut, whose name I forget, but I'll remember it in a second, ruled it a touchdown. Chaos ensued. Replay was somehow not allowed to be used to adjudicate it. And, of course, it went to the hometown team, and the Packers suffered a bitter defeat. That was early in the season. In fact, it might have been week one. And for Packer fans, it's not nearly as painful as the Brian Bostic fumbled onside kick game in which the Seahawks came back from the dead and with the crazy two-point conversion and the overtime strike to, was it Baldwin for the touchdown? In the NFC Championship game, which was the doorstep to Super Sunday, that's a more painful game. I asked the question on Twitter, and we can get this going. I said, if you could erase one game from sports consciousness, sort of like the premise of the movie yesterday involving the Beatles and their whole catalog of songs, what game would that be? And you don't even need to say why, because we'll know why. For Alabama fans, they would probably erase the kick six. Obliterate that from the record books and from everybody's consciousness. So that'll re-air tonight, 8 o'clock on ESPN, the famous Fail Mary game, Seahawks and Packers, with the replacement referees. And that was the play in the game that ushered in a new deal for the replacement refs. I'll never forget Gene Steratore getting a standing ovation as the real refs came back the next week and he walked out onto the field. Hour two, straight ahead. Don't go away. You're listening to The Zabe.